Welcome to the Community Exchange Podcast brought to you by OpenWeb. On this podcast, we're tracking the development and growth of the community economy, the emerging economic engine of the open internet. We're doing that by talking to leaders in media, tech, trust, and beyond who are bringing it to life. Joining me today is Rose Jackson. Rose is the director of the Atlantic Council's Democracy and Tech Initiative. There, she works to align global stakeholders toward tech and governance that helps build more open societies. It's a huge, important job. Uh, a key focus for Rose is trust and safety. Of course, that's also a central tenet of the community economy. Rose has one of the most unique backgrounds in the digital space. She is an entrepreneur and a former diplomat with 15 years of experience, and all of her work is about strengthening democracy and defending human rights, leveraging technology for social impact. Uh, prior to joining the Atlantic Council, Rose founded and served as the CEO of Beacon, a platform leveraging data and marketing tech to make it easier for people to take meaningful civic and political action. Uh, I'm so excited that she joined us for the community exchange. Um, we discussed the intersection of human rights and technology, along with strategies for preserving free and open societies and how tech can play a major role in doing that. It was a great conversation. Of course, the community exchange is brought to you by OpenWeb. OpenWeb's mission is to improve the quality of conversations online, building a healthier web where content creators of all kinds are empowered to thrive. As a product company, OpenWeb partners with publishers and brands to build strong, direct relationships with their audiences. OpenWeb's tech empowers its partners to build vibrant communities rooted in healthy conversations and robust social experiences. Today, OpenWeb works with more than 3,000 top-tier publishers, hosting more than 120 million monthly active users. Now, uh, let's get on with the show. Uh, Rose, you're the director of the Democracy and Tech Initiative at the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab. To start, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and your role there? Sure, and thanks for having me. Um, I I run an initiative that is very much an outgrowth of kind of the hodgepodge of work that I've done, both in the United States working politically and then internationally working with civil society and activists around the world working to build stronger democracies. Um, so parliaments, political parties, activists. Uh, and so I always say I'm a, I'm a democracy and human rights kid uh, that came to technology because I believe it's it's the forefront of the most important issues for society today. Um, and so when I came back from my time living abroad, I spent some time in the U.S. government as the chief of staff to the State Department's Bureau uh, for Democracy, Human Rights and Labor, which includes all of the U.S. government's support on Internet freedom issues things like helping seed funding to TOR, which is something I think a lot of people don't know, um, as well as working with activists to stay safe in repressive regimes. And so really came to some of that community and conversation around tech uh, in the State Department at the moment where governments were struggling to understand what to make of social media as activists were really creatively leveraging uh, technology tools to, to great effect. Um, and so my entry point, I say that because I've, I've seen technology be leveraged uh, in, in extremely innovative and creative ways for immense good. I've also seen technology used by governments to do horrible things to people. And so have always walked into the space believing that it's about how you, uh, how it's about power and how you leverage and build things intentionally. Uh, so when I uh, ended up during the Trump administration, I had been working at the uh, Open Society Foundations on security assistance. Uh, and having worked 
in US politics, having worked internationally with activists, was really struck in that moment where a lot of people in the United States were asking what they could do to strengthen their democracy or how they could be involved, that it was really hard for people to figure out uh, how to find something meaningful and impactful uh, in a sea of lots of different organizations and asks and in a moment that felt overwhelming. And so ended up founding a company that leveraged some of the best of marketing tech in a privacy respecting way to help people find and connect to action in their own backyards that matched their skills and interests um, and helped over time grow their, uh, their path to more sustained activism and community engagement. And through that ended up in uh, San Francisco, raised venture capital, did the whole thing uh, of building a, a tech company, which was not something that I thought I would find myself doing. Um, but when I came back to the warm embrace of national security and foreign policy, asking the big questions of what it means to support democracy and human rights in the world that we live in. Um, I was really struck having learned what I learned about how the tech space operates by the gulf between common objectives. I think there's a lot of people in tech that want to build technology to make the world better and to connect people. And I think there's a lot of people in government that want those goals uh, to be shared. And I think we all have a lot of very different conversations. Uh, and so returning to a space where I was working with uh, international civil society and uh, folks that were trying to address the uglier side of how technology was getting used, I really was motivated to find a way to bring people together in common conversation, people that don't know they're part of the same conversation to solve, uh, I guess we could say to solve a problem or to proactively build a version of a digital and technical world that uh, builds a society we all wanna live in and allows for the respect for human rights, allows for the strengthening of democracy, allows for innovation uh, and all of the exploration uh, that I think we often get excited about, uh, particularly in Silicon Valley. Um, so that's the kind of my oddball background that led to the creation of the Democracy and Tech Initiative, which sits at a very old school foreign policy national security think tank in Washington, D.C. called the Atlantic Council. Uh, so hopefully we'll get to have uh, more of a conversation about some of the work that we do within that. But that's me. Of course. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for joining us. Um, and we'll definitely touch on that. Um, but first, Joy, also joining us today. Um, I want to introduce you here. So you're the general manager of trust and safety at OpenWeb. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and the work you do with us here at OpenWeb. Yeah, sure. Um, thanks for having me, too. Uh, I just started on as the GM of Trust and Safety here at OpenWeb, so leading the Trust and Safety initiatives that the company is doing, uh, but also interacting with the larger tech industry in general and helping write those standards and um, see what we can do from a trade um, and industry point of view, as far as that goes. Um, my background is um, I've been on every side of what is now called Trust and Safety, but has been called online community online safety, uh, uh, data privacy protection and compliance. Um, I have worked on the publisher side um, with a lot of brands actually in-house as the, as the person leading up those initiatives in those companies. But I've also worked on the consulting and BPO side where I've provided the services that um, have to comply to all of the laws and regulations that you have to do. Um, and since I've been doing it for about 20 years, 
I've seen the evolution of this industry and the regulations and the interest, uh, the waning and waxing of the interest from all sides of it. Um, so I have a really unique perspective to bring to trust and safety, and I'm excited uh, about this conversation specifically uh, and, and hearing the work that you have been doing, Rose. Oh, that's great. Um, thanks for joining us. Um, so, okay, we can get started with a couple of questions. So, of course, this podcast is all about the community economy. Um, but before we get going, let's just define some terms. When we say community economy, we're referring to the future state of the open internet. And, you know, we see it emerging today. It's a new configuration of players where publishers and brands can become, with their community, economic engines that are empowered to thrive independently. And this all, importantly, this is all happening outside of the walled gardens that characterize Web 2.0. Um, so it's a paradigm shift. And there's a good reason to want to shift paradigms. I think it's pretty widely accepted belief at this point that those, are, those walled gardens um, in their time have failed to properly account for the social, cultural, political impacts that the platforms have had. Um, you know, they've failed to show respect for privacy. They've allowed toxicity to flourish online. And, and all of that has gone a very long way to damaging trust with users. Um, so, uh, Rose, through your work at the Atlantic Council's Democracy and Tech Initiative, you recently launched the Task Force for a Trustworthy Future Web. Um, just tell us a little bit about how the task form came to be, what its objectives are, and how it intends to achieve them. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, a, a main driver for, for launching it, it was partially in response to what you're referring to as kind of the, the legacy conversation. I think entering into a discussion on the digital world, it seems sometimes like we're just fighting over, um, you know, if, if I'm allowed to say the name of, of platforms, but people get getting angry about Facebook and then yelling about how Facebook does things and thinking about maybe two or three companies that are major players, but are not the entire internet, that there's a risk uh, at the same moment that I think it's, it's not just that there's new players, it's that there's a convergence of industry happening uh, and in particular, looking at the gaming industry as this massive, massive, massive ecosystem that has, for a lot of reasons, kind of flown under the radar of the policy conversations and of policymakers. And suddenly, we're having discussions about what's the metaverse or is Web3 a real thing? And it's really hard to distinguish marketing speak from reality at this particular moment. And so I think as policymakers are popping in, trying to understand, do I take this seriously? Do I not take this seriously? You have a lot of different incentives at play. We wanted to, as a, as a think tank that was focused on creating healthy digital environments, help set a little bit of a guideline or a roadmap for how to approach the conversation on proactively building this next generation of technology in a way that learns the lessons from the last round in which there are plenty of things we're not happy with how they went, as well as acknowledge where we actually don't have great answers right now for where the market can solve problems or not, where governments will need to step in, where civil society has to play an important role, and in the trust and safety space, which Joy, uh, you referenced this, but I, I often laugh that it's a term that we just like plopped on top of a bunch of random things trying to solve problems at various points in companies' histories. It's this industry that's kind of solidifying and starting to formalize and have community around it. But it's still a pretty amorphous concept. And so how do we start creating space and structure for a conversation 
it will allow us to ask important questions like, are the trust and safety practices that we have right now sufficient for the digital world we're likely to walk into? If something, for instance, is pretty text-based in capacity, does that transfer into an immersive context? Or even, frankly, having a real conversation about the good, bad, and ugly of giant companies that in the past have been able to spend a lot more money on building their own tools and trying to solve trust and safety problems. As we walk into a more decentralized or potentially decentralized digital space, what does it look like to be able to solve trust and safety issues, however you want to define those right now, when you don't have that sufficient resourcing and as many people working on it? And so it's just kind of teasing some of the questions, but I think you know, at the core of what we really want to do, and I appreciate the way that you in this podcast are talking about a community, because I think we we view very much that the internet at its core, at the kind of the digital world at its core, the magic of it, is that no one owns it. <laughs> no single government owns it. No company is supposed to own it. That there's this interlocking technical layer of, of real interoperability. We can have lots of arguments about who is controlling uh, certain layers of the internet at a commercial level or at a governance level. But technically speaking, it's an interlocking layer that's managed by a community of industry, government, and civil society that jointly make decisions in all these really boring and nerdy spaces that set protocols and standards. And the power of that, ironically, is pretty slow, which is maybe not the kind of the, the phrase that we like to use in Silicon Valley, but the power of that is that it does give everyone a stake and it does keep the internet as the shared open space. And so taking that kind of ethos, we wanna run this task force in a way that designs the questions and the framework for how we should be considering this next phase of the internet, ensuring that it's still tied to that set of values, that way of approaching solving problems and building things, the idea that we will have better tools that we enjoy more and that we have better tools that find the most innovative people to solve problems and build new technology, uh, as well as on the trust and safety side, ensure that we are building a structure and an ecosystem that is compatible with protecting people's rights and privacy and addressing some of the darker sides of the things that happen in the digital spaces we live our lives on. That's great. I, I, I was actually wondering um, how, how long First off, if you could talk about how long this task force has been in effect and um, what sort of inroads that you've made with different government agencies or um, legislators specifically is like what, what sort of impact have you had so far? Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's actually I'll take your your second question first. We We made the decision on this task force to have it explicitly not focus on government regulation for a few different reasons. Uh, one is uh, we work really closely in other programs with the European Union as it's trying to implement the new Digital Services Act. We advise uh, members of Congress in the United States who are trying to figure out how to push forward common sense tech governance and regulation here in the U.S., with the U.K., with Australia, with Canada, on and on and on. The speed of regulation is necessarily slow. It has massive impact. We want it to be a slow and intentional process. The speed of technological change right now, <laughs> uh, I think we started this process in September. Between September and this moment, when we first designed the task force, ChatGPT had not been released. ChatGPT 3 had not been released, let alone ChatGPT 4. Bard wasn't out there. So even what it is that you want to be focused on are the vector of the conversation massively shifting within only a few months. So the intention of this task force is actually it's super quick turn. 
started in September by design. The final report will be released in June of this year. And the point of it is not to tell you how to solve the problems or what to do, but again, to kind of lay that framework for people to be able to react to and have a common conversation. A lot of it will frankly be focused on how philanthropy and others outside of just industry can focus their time and energy and money. Some of this is trying to identify for folks in the industry space that are in good faith trying to figure out they're building trust and safety teams for the first time, or they're the first policy person in a company or startups that are moving from that early phase where quote unquote trust and safety is probably uh, run by your customer success person that was your number two sales hire. <laughs> moving from that into a formal team where you have more scale, more reach, and more of the kind of difficult to handle questions that we're talking about. How do we provide tools as well as identifying where new things need to be created to help support this ecosystem as it grows and being healthy, having people in common conversation? Um, the last part of that I'll say of like what we expect to come out of it is even just bringing in, for instance, folks from the venture capital and private equity community in conversation with folks that lead and design actual product connected with people that have been working in the trust and safety industry for years. The conversations that they have together also helps kind of light up the overlapping Venn diagram where there's different language and I, I think, you know, I said in the very beginning, we think a lot of ourselves as an organization focused on helping people understand they're actually part of the same conversation. Uh, the reason for that is I, I, even on just regulation, I can't tell you how often I talk to a privacy expert that will end their sentence with this has major implications for democracy. And if you fix this, everything else is sorted. And then I'll go talk to an antitrust expert who will say this has major implications for democracy. And if you fix this, everything is sorted. And those two people don't talk to each other. And I think we know that setting, whether it's setting rules as governments or it's industry uh, players coming together to set standards together and define the world that they're operating in, we really can't do this in silos and we can't do it alone. So creating an initial kind of first step where these people can be in conversation together, solving problems, agreeing on language and scope and what the ecosystem itself is, is really kind of part of the goal. Our hope is that a lot of people take pieces of this and run with it. And whether that's helping universities to develop programs so that we have people trained in what we need for whatever we define trust and safety to be in the future, or again, for that startup that's about to scale and has two weeks to figure out what to do with a, a giant moment of opportunity and risk, a large company that's integrating a new technology and hasn't really thought about what it means for uh, a market in which English isn't the first language. Uh, on and on and on and on. What are some of those kind of tools and guidelines that we can help speed for the ecosystem and call out where there's the greatest risk or the questions that we really don't know how to answer, but really need to figure out how to answer fast? Uh, I love it. I, I, I've found been doing this for a long time, you'll come across people who uh, think they're the first people to come up with these questions, these topics. <laughs> And I'm like, that's crazy because I remember doing it a while ago. Um, <laughs> or people who are just like really overwhelmed at their startup, their small or medium-sized company. And they're just like, I don't even know where to start. And you're like, well, there are more of us. We can help each other and we're community professionals. So clearly we care about helping each other. So um, I'm yeah. glad about this and uh, this is a great initiative. 
Thanks. I mean, I will say you've been in the industry for a while. I'd love to hear what you think is the most, what's different right now, or does it feel different right now uh, from earlier phases? I, I, I'm hearing so much from people, even that were part of the initial work on spam. And they're like, I, we, hi. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think that the mass market understanding is much different now. Um, we were dealing on what was called the uh, the the long tail back in the day. Um, we were dealing in niche markets, or you specifically went into the different areas. I actually have been I was in gaming for quite a bit. Um, so there was a lot of really cool innovation happening, but you only heard it amongst other gaming professionals. And so then now I'm hearing um, whispers of pro-social behavior, but we've been talking about that in gaming for years and actually have studies um, from gaming for years. But it's just great that there's more collaboration happening so that we don't have to reinvent the wheel constantly with these concepts and we can kind of move forward. And then the other big thing that's different is that um, I think regulatory bodies and legislators are starting to realize that there are experts that they can lean on and they don't have to deal with just their intern Googling um, what they can find out. Um, and they can actually like go to those of us who have been doing it as opposed to the pearl clutching, hand wringing parents that are worried about some issue, but to have no context of uh, what their requests to the legislators are meaning like on, uh, on a larger scale. So. Yeah, it's been it's been really interesting uh, watching, you know, there's a trust and safety professionals association that's formed. There's another kind of more industry organized association. There's something called the Integrity Institute of folks that have worked within companies trying to help advise, you know, European and American regulators and better understanding how to approach these conversations. And it does feel like this really interesting, rich moment right at the same time that there's all of this economic uncertainty in tech. Uh, and waiting to see what happens with who who makes it through and how do companies view this kind of coming regulation that makes it feel like it's real for the first time in certain ways without a lot of clarity on exactly what it's going to mean at a moment that it's harder to spend resources than it used to be. Um, so, I, yeah, I think on top of what you're saying, we're also really interested in understanding some of those market forces and dynamics and what like what builds a case. And that's that's why this podcast is really interesting to me. Like what builds the business case for people caring about these things? Because we find, you know, if it's if it's a understood only as a cost center, um, it's really hard internally to get people to invest in care. I think the brand community is this undertapped ecosystem, much in the way that you know we had gaming as a separate conversation, and we would think about ads as only like, well, what are the policies on Facebook or Google for how people can set ads? But advertisers themselves and brand community as its own industry, beginning to shape what this ecosystem looks like. And I think we have a lot to learn in my world um, about how, how we can use those, uh, those different communities to align incentives towards better outcomes. Um, but it feels, it feels like a moment, a very exciting moment of a lot of change, though I'm very curious where it goes with everything else kind of up in the air in tech and elsewhere. And, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And uh, I, I definitely want to talk about translating all of this into action at the corporate level or by governments. Um, but before we get to that, I want to ask a question. Um, we talked about the task force, uh, but that obviously sits inside the Democracy and Tech Initiative and the Digital Forensic Research Lab at the Atlantic Council. So can you tell us a little bit um, 
about like what exactly the digital, digital forensic research lab is and the democracy, uh, sorry, democracy and tech initiative are and why they were yeah. formed? I mean, it, mostly we just like to make it really hard to say our name uh, so that yeah. <laughs> people struggle over it. It's the nesting dolls of unending uh, acronyms. Um, yeah, I mean, so it's the, the DFR lab was originally, uh, it started as a paper. So I don't know if you guys remember the first time that, well, the first time, the, the last time that Russia invaded Ukraine, uh, not this one, <laughs> uh, was, you know, they sent soldiers over into Eastern Ukraine and then said, we don't have anyone there. And a bunch of people on the internet, uh, looked on Instagram and said, well, that's interesting because your own soldiers seem to be posting pictures of themselves in Ukraine on Instagram and I've geolocated it. In fact, they tagged themselves in some cases in these locations. Would you care to answer? And you can imagine a bunch of like older established military national security figures going, whoa, <laughs> the internet, that's wild. And so this paper uh, got a lot of attention, as you might imagine. And so the Atlantic Council was like, hey, guys, do you want to maybe turn this into something? Why don't you try and build this out? And the folks that had helped create that, which spurred the kind of early community of open source investigators on uh, online. Uh, so things you might have heard, Bell and Cat and other things like that were kind of grown out of this initial community. And the DFR lab is one of the original organizations that tried to create standards because what happened was it was easy enough to be able to pull those pictures off of Instagram and say, Russian soldier in Ukraine, hi, problem. But you may remember there was a period of time, particularly during U.S. elections, where if anything bad happened on the Internet, everyone's response was it's a Russian bot. <laughs> And so the beauty of open source investigated an open source investigation of the internet is that it is quite accessible and it allows you to leverage the eyes and awareness and local community knowledge of a lot of different people. The downside is if you don't have standards and replicability, it gets really dangerous and actually can feed disinformation and kind of poisoning of an information environment. And so what DFR Lab over the years formed into was one of the early entities that tried to say, this is how you do this. And here are some standards of how, you know, I often it would be like, hey, I see this bad thing on the Internet. Can you tell me, should I be worried? Is this foreign interference? Is this a foreign government or is this actually Bob from down the street that's mad about a thing? Um, and so it was one of the early places that started working with platforms quite collaboratively to get access to data sets and analyze those data sets to understand the hallmarks of distinguishing what might be an inauthentic coordinated campaign of it doesn't have to be a foreign government for that to be a problem. People that are trying to push an inauthentic narrative on the internet versus what's actual discourse and conversation. And then put researchers all over the world because the information environment is interconnected. And so it's not like there's just an American internet and that you're completely cleaved off from a conversation that's happening in Europe or India or Latin America and on and on and on. And so we have researchers in, uh, in Colombia and Mexico. We've had researchers in India. We have folks focused on uh, narrative and information ecosystems in China, a team in Georgia and Ukraine. We still have staff in Ukraine, all over Eastern Europe. Uh, we have some folks based in Brussels in the UK. We have uh, South African researchers focused on the continent. And we they kind of operate like a newsroom. And so really their job is to look at what's happening in the information ecosystem in their own backyards, 
pitch and identify stories. And then we get a better look on globally what's going on, how are bad actors trying to manipulate and leverage these tools uh, to, for it could be for profit reasons. It could it doesn't actually matter why someone is able to <laughs> make use of um, uh, the Internet in bad ways. It's just that it's bad ways and people learn from each other. Uh, but we also tend to then see trends. And so, you know, when Russia invaded Ukraine this time, the narrative buildup, we did a lot of work and had been for years monitoring how Russia was shaping narratives all over the world and particularly in Eastern Europe. And we're able to warn that they were kind of building the case for an invasion and then able to document the uh, through satellite imagery and imagery that had been posted by citizens, civilians, as well as, again, military personnel online, where people actually were and what's actually happening in the conflict. Uh, and then, you know, I, I one of the stories that to me really brings home the global nature of this is we then found uh, in some of our researchers in Africa and Latin America found, you know, the Chinese embassies in some of in the countries in some of those regions kind of testing messaging for the Russians <laughs> leading into, say, a United Nations vote censuring the Russians for their invasion trying to make it harder for an African country or a Latin American country to show up at the UN and say, we're not okay with what Russia is doing. So I, these things really do have major ramifications in the real world and in people's lives. But we find that if you don't have independent assessment able to shed light on it and make sense of it, it's very easy for that information itself to become weaponized and for the information ecosystem to be a net negative in some ways. So how do we keep a resilient information ecosystem? One layer of that requires more people in the world capable of doing the kind of research that our researchers do. So we do a lot of training of other civil society actors all over the world so more people can set those standards, speak credibly, shed light on what's happening, and ensure then that we in the United States and elsewhere can learn from that and have a resilient information ecosystem. That's a, a really, really long story on the DFR lab itself. The Democracy and Tech Initiative, which I helped build and found two years ago, was building off of what you might not be surprised happened, which is if you're documenting all the stuff that's happening and you're pointing out all of these ways in which the internet is being used, both governments and companies are going to come to you and say, well, what do you want me to do? <laughs> this is insane. And so for years, the DFR Lab had been helping name your big company and name the government, democratic governments only, figure out how to conceptualize and understand potential responses um, as well. And that, that could be everything from how do you engage with the research community? What kind of information and data is helpful to share? Carving out the importance again of having an independent space that isn't a company that has a vested interest in its own success, obviously, and therefore may not always be trusted when it puts information out. And a government likewise, that may not always be trusted when it puts information out because it has its own interests to have independent actors that are focused on the integrity of the ecosystem and democracy itself can be a really helpful and important part of keeping these spaces functioning. So that had never been formalized, the policy practice. And so the Democracy and Tech Initiative both takes a lot of the lessons learned from that global footprint and research and tries to put that into proactive policy practice. So everything from right now, helping to define when we say researcher access to data, there's this huge conversation over transparency and what that means within big tech, 
well, what data are we talking about and who does it go to and who has access and how do you make sure people's privacy is still protected while you're providing that access to independent researchers? Is it only academic researchers or is it also groups like ours? Um, so helping to inform, as you were talking about, Joy, the, the responses by connecting into actual experts. And we work really closely with a lot of folks that have been in companies or are still in companies. And likewise, people like myself that have often also sat in government and try and find the best paths forward on both sides. Uh, the, the kind of last thing I will say about the Democracy and Tech Initiative, which is where I think this task force fits in more, is we also believe very strongly that you have to have a proactive vision. So this can't just be reactive to what's going on. And unapologetically, we're focused on ensuring that democracy and human rights can sustain for the long term. And so our, our entire program is focused on understanding how the ways that tech is funded, built, and governed impacts that long-term viability and taking action to build communities of practice to have better policies and better technology and better communities able to drive that forward. And so I think of this task force as very much kind of almost like all those researchers around the world, helping us shape and understand what is, defining that world so that we can take better action towards the world we want, uh, and helping bring more people into the boat to, to take those actions. So we do that in partnership with a lot of people around the world uh, and a lot of different companies, including obviously working closely with Tiffany uh, at OpenWeb and yourselves. We're really happy to have you as part of this project um, and, and a number of other folks from around the ecosystem. It's just kind of building on the model. Um, I wanted to know, it, it's very clear to me and I'm sure to everyone else listening, how the work that you're doing is going to impact governments and um, private companies and that sort of thing. How long do you think before we'll start seeing the impacts on the individual user and audience member level? I love that question because it's, why is it always the last thing? Not, I'm not saying that towards you, but like that's, it's so rarely the focal point of a conversation on technology. And at the end of the day, I think the reason I'm a human rights nerd is universal human rights, as like wonky as that sounds, is fundamentally about what me as an individual in my society and my community and my country can expect as basic protections on what are what are mine and what I can count on. Like privacy is such a great example of that. There, there's no version of the world where we can have a digital space with zero privacy protections and human rights can sustain. And so, you know, my dream, what I would say is like, what would success look like is if we start building technology that doesn't give people these false choices, that it's like, you can either have nice things or you can have rights. <laughs> because I think we all know, like I, I've built a platform that allows you to have some pretty nice aspects of technology and doesn't harvest all of your data, send it to whoever I want to send it to and tells you like, sorry, those are your choices. Um, and so I think as we're building these wonderfully creative and innovative immersive spaces, or we're building these spaces that allow communities to self-organize, whatever it is that that looks like, that we're baking in from the start, those core principles that I should be in control as a user over my level of risk, the kind of ecosystem I want to engage in doesn't require everyone to be in the same space and have the same comfort level. But that that, that control means that companies do have to provide information and that governments that are setting rules should be thinking about that as a core, a core organizing principle of what a regulation should create. 
It's not about whether the government gets behavior out of a company that looks like exactly what the government decides it should be. The government should be creating and shaping incentives in partnership with the rest of the community doing this so that companies have the path towards development that builds technologies, putting users at the core, and that users do have the information and options that they need to make good informed decisions that are right for them and right for their families and the communities that they want to live in. And that's a pretty basic concept <laughs> that's really hard to get right. And I think the more that we can set that as an expectation and standard, and frankly, just gut this idea, I, like two of the most poisonous things that I think come out of a conversation on tech. One, it's too technical, you can't understand it. No. <laughs> and two, that th then you can pay, you know, that either of the choices I can have a completely freemium internet in which I have no rights or protections, or I can pay $3,000 a month or some unattainable amount to have access to any information. If we can get rid of those two excuses as the core organizing principle of our technology conversation, I think that we'll be in a much better place. And I hope that this task force creates paths for much more honest problem solving in a way that people can understand and feel ownership over and start demanding, frankly, as consumers, what they want out of the companies that they do pay for services and entertainment and education and all sorts of other things. You know, I wonder, you talk about those two options and, and we need to get past them. Where do you think that narrative comes from? Oh, <laughs> I think that it's too complicated is was a way to not have people in tech space. I think that we did, we absolutely had this period of time where it was very tempting to just say like, I don't, I don't want government regulation. I don't want anyone asking these questions. So it's just too complicated. Don't worry about it. I think some of that too, though, honestly, is there are plenty of people that were building technology in which they were asked a question that they didn't have an answer to. So it wasn't that they were like, I know how to answer this. I'm just not going to tell you that they didn't know how to answer it because they were playing around. They were experimenting. Again, it's like the wonderful part of technology that you can toy around with things. Some of the most brilliant innovations come by accident. Uh, that's great, except in large societal impact, when you get to certain scale, that can't be the only guiding principle for what decisions get made and how things move. And I, you know, a, a firm believer that we're better off if people with the right perspectives and expertise are able to ask the right questions and have that feed into design and business decisions before we get to a path determinative future where it looks like the conversation we have right now, which is like, too bad it's reality. So you can have the, the crap that is in front of you that you don't like, and there are no other choices. Um, and I think that's where the second one comes from, which is a mixture of accepting that premise allowing us to move into a version of the world where people are afraid of asking questions, where we don't value, you know, the tech expertise in a policy conversation and the policy and lived experience of citizens and people in a tech conversation as being equally important to coming up with good policy and regulation and good technology and business practices. And I think it's, it's that being a little, creating the space for humility, creating the space for open innovation and investigation in the design of the ecosystem itself. That it's not just that the principles we love for creating technology apply only to the technology itself. It should apply to the technology as it's used in society. Um, but I think that's how we got here. And it's why whenever people say, you know, uh, 
like it's very easy to make fun of Congress, right? And there's that famous hearing where Mark Zuckerberg is sitting in front of the Energy and Commerce Committee and an old politician says, how do you make money? And Mark Zuckerberg says, sir, we run ads. And everyone laughs. But number one, that was actually a pretty useful moment for many of people in the country that do not have visibility on the advertising ecosystem and how important that ecosystem is to driving business outcomes of technology companies and the incentives around it. But also, I think that it's not totally fair to dunk on policymakers who for years were told, don't break this thing. Don't ask those questions. You're not smart enough to understand any of this. And so I, I think it's, it's poisonous, honestly. I want us to have more of this open space. Government can be hard to understand and we should allow technology companies and technologists to ask very real questions about why it works a certain way and how technology companies likewise and people in the tech industry need to walk into their spaces open and welcoming of more people coming in and more people being part of solving problems and designing the future. Yeah, and I love I love that the third leg of that stool is is the actual users themselves and that everyone has a responsibility to participate in the conversation and contribute to the conversation. It's not just government. It's not just the tech company, but the users are also key to um, the responsibilities that they have as users, but then also to speak up when they see something's wrong or they need they need a direction that the innovation needs to go into and um, really empowering them with the ability to speak up um, and and crash through those gatekeeping gates um, so that they can actually participate in it. Because it is like that. The, the, gover the government officials have felt like they weren't smart enough to do it. And so do the users. The users are like, oh, oh my. Yeah, I don't understand it. <laughs> You're like, the, oh, you actually do. <laughs> the, thing is that the thing I always say is um, don't say your kids are smarter at tech than you because that's a self-fulfilling prophecy, just become smarter at tech. <laughs> like if your eight-year-old knows how to do something, I bet you could learn it too. So you're uh, capable. <laughs> rise up. You can do it. Um, get up there. So yeah. I you know you said something actually earlier that I I think people also miss that to me is this really interesting component of the gaming world. Uh which is, you know, one of the things in when we talk about Facebook or Twitter and kind of the web 2.0 discussion of social media, a lot of people like to talk about it like the it's the public square, which I, I actually hate the the framing of it as the public square because it's not. It's privately owned ecosystems uh, <laughs> in which we all try to shove ourselves into public conversation. Uh, but there's this whole idea that like, well, because it's the public square, a tech company shouldn't have a viewpoint. It, we should just be like completely neutral and hands-off such that that's even possible. What I really appreciate about the gaming industry that I don't think people fully grasp is as you were talking about like intentional innovations, intentional um, pushes, a game is an intentional set of experiences. You're walking into a technology space that was quite intentionally and proactively designed to have people bump into each other or bump into an experience in a set number of ways. And I think that we haven't done enough of that sort of discussion of what do we learn from, what are the intentional interactions that we want in digital spaces and in societies? And how do we design for those intentional interactions, which inherently requires putting users at the center because it's people 
and people are unpredictable and people are human and people have all, all of the things that happen offline are going to happen online. That division of the online versus offline is no longer relevant. It just, it, our world, it, they're both, we live in both places, that's reality. And so I think getting away from this idea of like the end goal of like what technology should be doing to make sure that there are safe spaces or what the government should be doing to ensure technology doesn't create unsafe spaces is somehow this like perfect pristine neutral space that people walk into without any viewpoints nothing bad happens or because they don't have any impact at all either so right like that's it's the world it's the world it's a surface that we interact on as long as we are then starting to have again, more humble conversations about understanding the ways in which the platforms that we design shape our interactions and understanding the ways in which we walk into those interactions and everything that's necessary to then build a healthier space. It sounds insane to imagine that that could be done with just a, a an engineer <laughs> sitting in a closed room, right? Like that's an insane proposition to that description of the world that we're walking into. But I think that's often how we've thought we were going to solve things. And I think you do still get some people that are like, it's a technical problem that I can fix. It's like, eh, maybe not. <laughs> um, but that's why the ecosystem, again, the community framing that you guys are using, I think is such a healthy way to approach it because it is this complex interlocking ecosystem because the world is a complex interlocking ecosystem of humans. And that's what we're trying to do is all build and engage with technology in ways that serves humanity and individuals and businesses and whatever, it's an unbelievably expansive set of reasons that we're using technology. Um, and so core principles then become what we should be focused on, that transparency, which is also inviting people in to ask questions. Uh, the understandability of what's happening. Do we know what technology is being used in what ways, how I'm interacting with that technology, when I'm interacting with that technology, control over my own information and my risk level. Um, and in understanding then when we walk into the public ecosystem, when we're talking about having to use these tools to talk to our governments, to gain services, to be able to express ourselves politically, how does that look different? And what are the extra protections that we need to ensure those spaces are uniquely transparent, accountable, and aligned with the rules and rights that we expect to have in society? Yeah. <laughs> I, I co-sign all of everything. That you're saying, so. um, <laughs> it's very nice when you get to say democracy and human rights over and over again and be like, I dare you to say you don't like them. It's, it's kind of unfair. <laughs> yeah. It's one of those, uh, uh, go ahead and come out against it. Yeah. <laughs> That's a, that's a really good viewpoint to have. So. Yeah, it's unfair. I know. Yeah. No, but that, that all sounds great. I think, um, you know, we're, we're pretty much out of time now, but I think we've done a, a pretty good job in this conversation of talking about how you're bringing people together to have these conversations. And um, by getting the right people in the room, I think a lot can be done. Is there any specific, uh, anything specific you'd like to say about that? I have um, just kind of maybe one more thought, which is, like I said, we've talked a lot about convening um, all the different players. Uh, is there at some point, um, is there a, is the idea that we would create a sort of like policy recommendation or set of best practices, or is it more that, uh, and if so, how will we sort of like enact that in corporate or in a government context? Yeah. I mean, I think it's like for the task force itself, it's going to look like a lot of different pieces of that. So I'll give an example of, of one thing that 
for sure, I, I would be shocked if we didn't come out with, um, was I articulating the need for tooling <laughs> to be available outside of just the giant, giant players, right? So how is it that that startup that you were talking about before that's scaling into its next phase? Like, what are the vendors that you go to? What are the resources you go to? Do we think about certain trust and safety tools in the same way that you think, like, I, I would never think of building an app without immediately being like, well, what's the cloud provider I'm using? And am I going to design for an Apple app store first or an Android app store first? And are you going to use Heroku or, right? Like there's, there's this whole architecture of how technology gets built. And so one piece of that is how do we think about the things required to functionally do what we're calling trust and safety in a company as part of that tech stack? And what is the market that enables that? Is there a market for it? So some, some of it is calling out necessary work and investment around those sorts of pieces. Other things, I think we'll focus on kind of core principles, but that might look like, you know, if I'm a company expanding into a new market, what are the things that I need to check I am capable of and I have capacity and ability to do before I go there? What are my risks? What are those needs? And so some of this is, yeah, what are the shared learnings that we can apply? Um, some of it is going to be, can we fund new technologies and companies? Some of this is going to be, again, I mentioned, you know, are there people that are trained to do this? Joy, you spent how many years in an industry learning by doing and as you said, like there are people that know how to do this at this point. Can we start, you know, folks that are coming out of college in all sorts of different industries with the skills that they need? That's part of workforce development, both for government and industry, as well as folks in my space that know how to run the tests, the conversations that we are, are talking about. How do you, what are my concerns with different language models? And frankly, as technology grows as fast as we've talked about, uh, you know, generative AI just being today's conversation that massively changes a trust and safety discussion for good and bad, how we apply it for tools that will help us provide safety and trust and better ecosystems, as well as people that are going to leverage those tools to do horrible things and drop just garbage and fire into our information ecosystem. Um, so I think it's more trying to help people structure and understanding of where to start, what to focus on, where do these issues hit their work? And so very actionable um, bite-sized chunks for people to take on from the industries that they're in. I think the kind of guiding mark that I've used is saying that if, you know, if you're an expert in ad tech, uh, I would want that you look at what we come up with and where ad tech is mentioned, you go, yeah, it's credible. And then you read something about a different industry that you don't know anything about, and you learn about that industry and how it connects to what you're doing. And that hopefully that makes it, a, the, the next steps for these sorts of action become a little bit easier. We know where to start and what to work on. There's plenty of work. Um, and at the same time, I don't want to dismiss what's happening on regulation because I think, you know, the Digital Services Act, which I mentioned a few times, in the next year, some really, really big things are happening that will impact future web as well as the internet of today. And that includes, as we speak, they are setting standards for what does it mean to audit a tech company for compliance with the Digital Services Act? What does a risk assessment look like that lets us better understand what systemic risk is of tech in, in the 
world as we're experiencing it. Uh, setting standards for what data companies are going to be required to provide to researchers and to regulators, as well as what information they're going to have to report to the public to empower users. And all of that information will be used not only by the European Union to then tweak how they are enforcing their law. All of that information is going to change how all of us understand the digital world we're sitting in. And so it's an opportunity, frankly, right now that I don't think we're going to get again in the next 10 to 15 years that those standards that get set right now not only will be replicated by other countries that are trying to figure out how to do this, but I also think either it takes us in a really helpful direction where we have better information that we can use to answer the questions that you're talking about. And for, frankly, even companies like Open Web to better understand the market that they're going to be operating in, or it becomes a money-burning, meaningless exercise to paper over an opportunity for us to all really get our hands dirty and figure out how to build a better version for this next round. And so it's kind of a call to action on the nerdiest, wonkiest, least exciting sounding thing on the planet, but pay attention and get involved in the next year. There really are, there's opportunities for public comment. There are a ton of associations and organizations that are pulling in expertise to try and feed into the European Union to help them set these standards in the right way so that it is a useful tool and something real and meaningful. Um, and that's something that allows us to build this task force. The reason that I think some people are interested in engaging in this task force and seeing what comes out of it is because things like the Digital Services Act are pushing companies and others to have to pay attention and have this conversation and level up some of the work that folks like Joy have been doing for a long time that hasn't had that overarching language or attention as part of a core requirement for the industry. Um, so again, that's why I think we started saying that this is, this is a really interesting and exciting time, but uh, you kind of have to grab it and do something with it. Uh, and so I hope that folks listening to this will really take that call. And I hope that the task force can be a helpful launch point forward for how to do that and where to start and what conversations to take forward into action. As do we, and it's <laughs> super needed. Um, so this has been great. We're out of time, um, but thank you for taking the time to do this. And uh, thank you as well, Joy, of course. Um, of course. It's been good. Hopefully we can talk again. All right, you've been listening to the Community Exchange, an open web podcast that tracks the emerging community economy by talking to the leaders who are bringing it to life. My guest today was Rose Jackson, director of the Atlantic Council's Democracy and Tech Initiative. Please join us next time on the Community Exchange. We'll see you then.